0: Okay, recording. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Jeff Danziger, and he's just published a book, July 2021. Title of the book is Lieutenant Dangerous, a Vietnam War Memoir, and it's an editor's pick on Amazon right now, and it has 203 five-star ratings and Jeff Danziger is one of the most widely recognized political cartoonists of his generation. He is syndicated by the Washington Post News Service and is the recipient of the Herb Block Prize and the Thomas Nast Landau Prize. He served in the U.S. Army from 67 to 71, with one year in Vietnam in the First Air Cavalry, the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment, and other units. He received a Bronze Star and the Air Medal. And like I mentioned, he is... Uh, well-known cartoonist, and he has many books. Some of the titles I'll mention. One is The Conscience of a Cartoonist, published 2014. Another's there's Wreckage Begins with W, Cartoons of the Bush Administration, 2004. Blood, Debt, and Fierce, Cartoons of the First Half of the Last Half of the Bush, Bush Administration, 2006. So those are a few of his books. And you can find his updated, he actually just published a new cartoon in March, 2022. You can see those. If you type in his last name, Danziger, which is D-A-N-Z-I-N-G-E-R, his website is danzigercartoons.com, so you can check that out. And this is kind of one interview and a series of interviews I've done about Vietnam. You can go back and look at my earlier shows if you're interested. Uh, One was a guest whose name was William Taylor, and his book was On Full Automatic, Surviving 13 Months in Vietnam. And another was Carol Herdlick, that's H R D L I C K A, whose husband was lost as a pilot over Laos. And her book was and is Finding David, an American Wife Betrayed by our government. Still kind of ongoing. He's been lost for many years, but uh, I'm delighted to have Jeff Danziger on, and he's going to talk about his book, Lieutenant Dangerous. So, Jeff, welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. Good to be here. Awesome. For people who may not have heard your name or may not have seen your cartoons, you've had a very long career. Can you kind of talk about your career? I know you you were in Vietnam in the military from 67 to 71, but what kind of led you through your career and then to write and want to write this memoir, Lieutenant Dangerous?
1: Well, I think that the cartooning is that I've always loved to draw and I've always been interested in politics. The two come together. I admired uh, the famous American uh, political cartoonists, uh, even going back as far as Thomas Nast or, uh, or, or, or beyond that. It is a strange uh, little outpost of journalism because it brings together two things of drawing and, and politics. And at the same time, at least for the most part in, in this country, they expect, editors expect and readers expect that it will be funny. Uh, it's not always funny, and sometimes it could be really effective by uh, not being by not being funny, especially on serious, serious, serious subjects.
0: And you kind of got in trouble too. I saw in your bio you wrote something about Condoleezza Rice that people were um, upset about, right? So you've had you definitely had some uh, controversy.
1: Well, you can't uh, you can't please everybody. I had a great admiration for Condoleezza Rice. I thought she was very smart, very smart person, and I uh, drew her uh, somewhat like the character from Gone, the movie "Gone with the Wind." And I probably shouldn't have done that because that was an extraordinarily racist mi- movie. And but you know, I I just apologized. I'm, I'm sorry. It was a mistake. You know. I shouldn't have done that yeah
0: and you but you've had many i mean you went through critique the bush administration and you've had a long career i mean i i think it's you've been drawing for 30 years right
1: actually i think i i think more than that the first uh first cartoons i did were back in the in the 70s after i got out of uh out of the army and i was uh, teaching school in vermont and i started to do it for the local paper the uh Newspapers at that time, if you remember, had switched over from hot metal printing (lead) to uh, offset printing, and they didn't have to do. They didn't have to pay for engraving, and so people who uh, did did drawings or or uh, sketches or or whatever whatever else they did simply could do the drawing and paste it up, and it went in the paper.
0: So it started back in Vermont. And you know, you've done that for quite some time, and then this something brought you to want to write this memoir. What was that?
1: I had written uh, two other, uh, two other books, and uh, uh, "I am as most Vietnam veterans uh, feel. I think they feel that for in the first place, the war is not being taught. it's not being taught to uh to the uh, younger generations. And in the second place, we're getting older. And if we don't tell the story now, before we all die off, uh, certainly the United States government is not gonna, going to do it. And I was in a, I was in a uh, meeting with, uh, or a dinner with some young people who had gone to some of our better colleges. And I realized they, they didn't know anything about, uh, The war and they did, and, and I don't know if whether they cared. They were they wanted to know about the history of their own country. And one, so I try not to talk about it. But one guy said to me, one young man said to me, "Well, if you didn't like the army, why did you join?" And I realized he didn't know that I didn't join. I was drafted, and they had no conception of what it was like to be sent a a, a message from your government to the effects, stop what you're doing and show up for a physical. And if you pass the physical, you will be gone two years, including one year in a war zone. I just thought that was amazing. Uh, Now the army is... uh, all volunteer and probably should be, but we'll see. It depends on how many people uh, the Army needs and, and, and the Navy and the, and the Air Force and the Marines, um, how many they need. Because if they put out a call for volunteers, they might get volunteers and they might not. And if they don't get volunteers, then they're going to have to have a draft.
0: Right. And I mean, I think you said in your book, like they were mostly concerned about, Getting um, drafted, like in the context of like, wow, could that happen to me? It was a much different time back there in the '60s, wasn't it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Can you talk kind of talk about the, the those tumultuous that tumultuous decade and and yeah. how you got into the military?
1: Uh, the era was tumultuous because we did not have a good sense of what we were supposed to do, why we were there. We had no concept. And uh, if, you, if you want to know a little bit more about it, you read Colin Powell. And Colin Powell, who I think was an admirable soldier and an admirable human being, um, said that you have to, first of all, have uh, support back in the, in the United States if you're going to go overseas. And second of all, you, you have to know about how you're going to get out of it. And the third thing was that you had to really go in with a tremendous force to get it done as quickly as possible. And we didn't do either of those. We went in to advise. We thought we were uh, fighting against uh, communism, whereas it really turned out the truth was the Vietnamese, they weren't communists. They were Vietnamese, and they didn't hate us, and they didn't. Particularly like the French, but they they didn't hate us. But their real enemy had been for years was China, and I didn't know that. And I don't think anybody that uh, my fellow soldiers knew that. Uh, we were never never told
0: that. And you so wrote was, in your intro, you had a lot of respect for the Vietnamese people. It wasn't you didn't come out the other into that war with a lesser respect. At least that was my impression.
1: No, no, they were they, were extraordinarily, they were extraordinarily brave people. They wanted their country back. They uh, seemed to be uh, in favor of some sort of Marxism or Leninism or communism, but they really didn't care. They just had been at war, uh, first with uh, many years ago with the Chinese, then with the French colonizers, then <clears throat> with, the, with the Chinese again. Uh, then with us, and then finally after we left with the Russians. Uh, so they really didn't know it. It's a terrible thing to think of when you're <laughs> you're trying to develop a country and people are constantly moving in and shooting the place up.
0: And you, uh, when you got drafted back in 67, at that time, you were almost, you were concerned, I don't think a lot of people would conceptualize this, but there were certain instances where you didn't want to wear your military outfit. You wanted the benefit of it, but a lot of people were very, had a lot of antipathy towards the military. Isn't that right? I didn't
1: mind wearing the uniform. By that time I was, I was making, you know, people don't follow this very closely, but if you were drafted, I think we were making uh, barely over a hundred dollars a month. And then when I became an officer, I was up to five hundred and something dollars a month, and no additional funds were provided for for uh, money to call home or or uh, you know you got you got if you got sick you could go to the army hospital and if you needed uh, transportation they would give you a ticket to wherever you were going but it, it was uh, a very uh, straightened circumstance and I wore I when I would take the train you got half price if you went in uniform. But uh, other than that, there was no... And, you know, the people back here had the idea that if you were a soldier, you approved of the war, which, of course, was 100% wrong and had no idea how they could actually help you. Uh, uh, they, you know, they they didn't... They I never had the experience of being spat upon, but um but it could have been could have been
0: and when you got drafted you didn't go straight to Vietnam maybe people didn't couldn't conceive of that you spent time in Texas and some other places getting different types of training right
1: the draft was for two years and you had one year training here and then you wound up in an infantry company over there and I somehow had the idea that I was not an infantry. I didn't want to go in the infantry. You could sign up for schools, but you had to promise them extra time. And I went for a language school, which was uh, Vietnamese. And so I became an intelligence officer and and a translator uh, in in the Vietnamese language. But there were so many mistakes. I mean, the army, or the the government and the army, uh, where our language training which originally was supposed to be so that we could hear the enemy talking to each other. At that time, the enemy was the South Vietnamese, the, uh, not the South Vietnamese, the Viet Cong. But by the time we got through with the course, which was a year long, and it was in El Paso, Texas, it was the North Vietnamese, and the accent uh, of Vietnam and even the vocabulary in in the northern part of the country, and it's as it's as large uh, north south as the state of California, was a completely different um, accent. So we could sort of understand something that was going on on the radio, but actually not not very much. I worked with a crew of of uh, of uh, Vietnamese who spoke English and uh, I would try to check on what they were saying. But I, if they didn't know what you, if they didn't want you to know what they were saying, they, you know, there was a great deal of slang and special words and and there was no way that you could decipher. it.
0: Right. And I think you showed in the book, there's different tonalities, right? Same word. And yes. your, your excellent cartoons are, are interspersed throughout the book, which oh. I found very interesting. But you had one where it was, the word was like D-O-N-G, but you could say it in all these different tones and mean different things. So super complex, not, yeah. not, a, it's not a, a romantic uh, language. Romantic it is
1: language. a tonal language. There are six tones. It, uh, I think in China, there's, there's a, there are a variety of tones, depending on where you are. Vietnamese had six tones and the the language wasn't even, as it's written, was not written by a Vietnamese. It was written by a French columnist who added in extra what they call diacritical marks, which are accent marks, uh, for the tones and for a bunch of extra uh, uh, vowels that he assigned so we have eight vowels, nine vowels, and Vietnamese had something like thirteen uh, so you <laughs> i mean you have your average g i who is about as didn't want to be there in the first place and is then given the assignment to learn this tonal Asian language in which, if there are cognates and there are some, they were to French, not to not to English. I don't know how anybody could have come up with a, a more difficult, ridiculous uh, instance. And, of course, while all this is going on, you're being shot at.
0: Right. And then, I mean, there's a lot. I mean, the fact that you were there, but you go into detail in your book how kind of strange even the the process of uh, being drafted was. How people could get out, how many people could get in, and yeah. who really got ended up get, getting drafted were... Certain types of people, right?
1: I think the psychology was they didn't want to anger people who could do something about it. And so they didn't draft you if you were a college student. They didn't draft you if you were married. And then after a while, that changed to you had to have, you had to be married and have a child. And all during this period, there was no, the, 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 as they say, if you can remember the 60s, you weren't there. There was a new, uh, Appreciation of of drugs and music and uh, the relationship of people to the government and whether or not they were going to do what they were told, uh, and some people did. I mean, I did, and I don't remember why. I, I wish I uh, wish I could remember my actual thinking, but but I can't.
0: But there were some people who didn't. They went. You said they went to Sweden, Canada. They didn't show up. I mean, and a lot of people who were drafted were people who couldn't find a way out. So they just were maybe kids from outside of the big cities or something like that. So that's right. You know,
1: they just went AWOL. At one point, as this is what I uh, heard, the largest training uh, fort was was Fort Dix, uh, New Jersey, for for draftees. And uh, at any given time, there were 5,000 men AWOL. From Fort Dix, you know, and you can figure that when that happens, there's no way to get these people back. And as you uh, also may be aware, after the war was over, Gerald Ford just issued a blanket forgiveness for anybody who had uh, gone AWOL and skipped the draft. So there was there wasn't even any punishment about it because they finally realized what a desperately silly mistake uh the, the war had been.
0: And it's really incredible. And you and you got you spent time in the military for a while before you got your notice that you were going to Vietnam, right?
1: That's right. I was uh I was a year in Fort Bliss as an enlisted man at the this um rather ill considered language school that we had on at Fort Bliss, which is near El Paso, Texas and then i i got a i, I got a, a field commission or a direct commission and i had to spend uh, a year in training for that so that by the time i actually was sent over to vietnam i only had about a year of service left
0: right and you i mean you kind of, you go into how the military there's a lot of curious ways people survive in the military how you survive but I think you became something that you didn't expect to be, right? Like you got assigned to the, the ordinance, right? At least
1: <laughs> I was. Uh, I was given what they call a direct commission, which is I had already been to college. So uh, usually, you have to go through officer candidate school, which is which is pretty strenuous training. But because I had the the language, and because I already been to college, and because I. I don't know. I look in the uniform. I can't imagine why else they decide. And the the other thing was that they were desperate for officers, people who the the oddest thing that was happening was that when uh, younger officers are in the service, they are supposed to be bucking for a promotion, lieutenants to be captains, captains to be majors and so on. And the war was so unpopular and so poorly run and frankly, so so dangerous that people weren't pushing to get to get promotion and that's not supposed to happen people are supposed to want to get uh promoted and do a good job and uh you know know the regulations and the structure but they weren't
0: and so you kind of filled that gap right
1: i i uh, was at, by the time i got to vietnam the decision on my part was to get back you know to get back in one in one piece
0: and there was a lot of just kind of i mean i think you see it in a lot of these films like the backdrop of the war was really for the people like you who were involved it was like a feeling of like uh craziness and things don't make sense and parts pieces don't fit together can you kind of talk about that environment that you were in
1: I have not been to all of the Vietnam, the Hollywood Vietnam movies. And I think many of them get it completely wrong. And they also did a disservice to vets who were coming back. It was hard to get a job if you were a vet. People thought that you were uh, crazy or a baby killer because they had seen uh, the movie The Deer Hunter. And The Deer Hunter, the... uh, the Vietnamese are all uh, bloodthirsty, and they want to play Russian roulette with the with the uh, the uh, POWs. I don't think that happened. Uh, and the the other thing was that they were all so strung that the GIs anyway were so strung out on drugs that uh, they really couldn't be trusted in a job when they came back. And that wasn't true either. Most of the the GIs, certainly the infantry that that I knew were extremely careful and they didn't want to be in a position where any of their uh, awareness of what was going on around them uh, was, was, uh, you know, compromised. They wanted to make sure that they were uh, looking out for for themselves, for their own, uh, uh, for their own safety.
0: And you, can you kind of talk about some of the stories that you found very I mean, you include a lot of your first-person accounts in the book. Can you kind of talk about what it was like to be in Vietnam during that part, the time you were there?
1: Well, there were these silly regulations that were, that were really uh, insane. Uh, I mean, for example, you had to shave every day. Well, here we were in the middle of the essentially a jungle and uh, on our, or very rural areas. And you were required to shave. Now, I ask you, what the hell difference does it make whether you shave? But that was that was the rule, and you had to do it. You had to have, had to take care of yourself physically. We were supposed to be there with a mission to advise and to, to arm, and then to advise the South Vietnamese government on how to uh, uh, how to fight and how to use. Well, for example, they didn't know very much about artillery, and they didn't know very much about uh, how to fly helicopters. And we were supposed to advise them on how to do all those things. But they, in some cases, they did understand. And in other cases, they, they, would, they would listen, and they knew that because we were there temporarily and we were not going to stay there, there really wasn't much reason for them to, to hang in there.
0: I, uh, I mean, they, they had a kind of different sensibility about uh, the equipment and what to do mm-hmm. that may not have been, you know, what the West.
1: Yeah. Also, the the army and the and, well, the military establishment, the Pentagon in general, realized somewhere after the Tet Offensive, which is worth uh, reading about, that it wasn't going to work. And that we then had to figure out a way of getting out with some, some sort of uh, honor. And Nixon was talking about a peace with honor. Well, it wasn't possible. But when they announced that they were going to leave, and that was, of course, by that time, it was 1974. Uh, I came back in 70, uh, maybe or maybe it was 71, I think. Um, they... Uh, announced that they were going to have a huge operation to uh, stop the Ho Chi Minh Trail. They dropped more bombs on the Ho Chi Minh Trail in the, in the operative years of the, of the Vietnam War than the total tonnage of both sides, of all sides, in World War II. And they would just drop thousands of tons of bombs it had no effect at all because not only did it was the jungle huge and the ho chi minh trail at some point was almost a mile wide that they each crater provided a place to hide from the next bombing in addition you know you could hear the bombers coming you jumped in a crater and you were presumably safe so they uh, and this is toward the end, they decided to send in the uh, the Southern, South Vietnamese Army. And at the last minute, the Congress of the United States passed a rule that said, in the areas where the Ho Chi Minh Trail came through, which was Cambodia and Laos, there was to be no U.S. troops on the ground. The Army translated that to mean that there were to be no U.S. troops physically on the ground, but they could fly in uh, helicopters that had South Vietnamese troops on it, and then they would unload the South Vietnamese troops, and then they would wind up uh, taking the war to the to the enemy. Except that the South Vietnamese troops didn't want to fly in and do that. Our pilots didn't want to do the flying. And as I uh, point out in the book, if you have a helicopter full of soldiers, which would be, you know, seven or eight you could fit in, and they didn't want to get off, you couldn't make them get off. In the first place, they were armed, which no one no one seemed to remember. <laughs> what did you say? You You know, get off the helicopter and go fight. And we were landing them on the tops of mountains where the enemy knew exactly where they were. And we didn't know where the enemy was. It just got worse and worse.
0: Right. And you mentioned also there was that uh, sometimes the troops would uh, fight against people within the military too, right? Or fragging or whatever.
1: Well, the the craziest thing, of course, was what I mentioned in the book was, was a an operation known as known glibly as the wandering soul the vietnamese have a belief that if you die someplace not close to home and you're you're buried someplace else your soul or what's whatever it is wanders through the jungle and because it can't find its way home it Uh, Howls and screams and like a ghost, and this is very scary. And I, I have never heard it, but I can imagine how it would be very scary. So somebody in the South Viet, in the Saigon government, said, "Well, we will do that." And they made a recording that was supposed to be a wandering soul, and they put it on these on a helicopter, which with a with a recording machine and these huge. Uh, speakers, and they were going to fly this thing out at night to scare the hell out of everybody and scare the the North Vietnamese, who were a tough bunch of people, uh, into surrendering. But what they forgot, of course, was that our allies, the South Vietnamese, were equally scared when they heard this tape, and so they, a lot of them, deserted. <laughs> and, you know, but nobody thought about that. I think, he played, I think we played that tape about three nights in a row, and that was it.
0: That was it. Yeah. And you all, there was also some crazy thing where they tried to dr- drop in plants from the sky with recorders in you know? them. I mean, can you talk about that too? I don't
1: know if any of that ever worked, but you know, there were people whose business depended on selling some cockamamie idea to the Pentagon, and toward the end of the war, they would agree to anything. They supposedly had things that could sniff human perspiration and they were disguised as plants and they were dropped in. And if they dis- if they discovered human perspiration, they would send out a signal and we knew the location and uh, then we would shoot some artillery out there. Uh, except the fact that first of all, we lost track of where the locations were. And secondly, the, the supposition that the vietnamese were going to smell like american sweat was wrong the vietnamese essentially don't sweat very much at all so you know millions were spent on this project and and i don't think anything was ever was uh, anything was ever get, gotten from it, no. it
0: was never successful and that was it too like you talk about parts and this this whole like kind of strange economy that takes place in that time of war, it, just, it was just very no, no. Su- surprising how little kind of fit together, right?
1: Well, it's bizarre. And I, I remember even these stories now, and I, I hope that no one, uh, no one finds them too unbelievable, but they were so screwy and so uh, ridiculous that uh, uh, people who were given the idea of enforcing or given the order to enforce it, would say, well, that's not going to work. I'm not going to do that because it's not going to work.
0: Right. Wasn't, wasn't there like something, helicopter parts too? I remember like that like certain yeah. parts were really valuable and just...
1: Uh, when there was a, a contact going on and the helicopters were, which we sent out and they had guns on them and they would provide uh, supporting fire and they also would pick up... Uh, uh, wounded, wounded, and bring bring them back, and so there would be, you know, and the and the, at least the first cab had a tremendous number of helicopters. To fuel them, they needed to have this little this little pump that was operated by a Briggs and Stratton engine, and there was one little part that linked the pump to the motor. They were in short supply. It was a very important part, and without that, you couldn't quickly fuel a helicopter. And these parts went into a, a black market within the uh, government, where if anybody within the army, where if you had one of these uh, special links, you didn't put it into the supply channel because it was worth either some beer or a case of frozen steaks or pizzas or something that you uh, really needed. And so these things would go around not as parts that should have been used. They would go around as a kind of specie to buy things that made life worth living in in the war zone. (laughs) I hope that's clear. I don't know.
0: (laughs) I think so. I mean, it just was like a kind of a strange economy there, the way people kind of dealt with the stuff that was dropped off and yeah. Yeah. Wasn't and you said I think you said like people were just really atomized, they were just trying to get through it themselves. So it wasn't like a team spirit, like uh, thought maybe. Yeah.
1: And everything ran on everything ran on paper. There was no computer. There was no there were no telephones back to the States. Uh, you could get a a, a a phone link through the ham radio operators, which were which was pretty good. I went entire the entire year I was there. I never got to to call back. And they also they had you know, they had R&Rs in Hawaii and Kuala Lumpur in Tokyo and so on uh I, did, I very just to whine a little bit about my own terrible problems I never got an R&R god damn it and I you know
0: and what was it like once you realized that you were all getting close to the time that your service in Vietnam was over
1: yes that's right what they called getting short and if you were you were short, you pretty much decided well I don't want to be not only do I not want to be as in Senator uh, Kerry's words, the last man to die in Vietnam for a for a, a, a stupid war, and people would just uh, stop doing whatever they were doing. And it wasn't just, you know, the infantry soldiers who took this attitude. It was it was everybody. Uh, they they flatly would refuse to do things, and there wasn't anything you could do. You couldn't line them up and point a gun at them and say, go do it. Uh, my father used to say that soldiers, he was in the South Pacific during the war, and he said that, you know, soldiers aren't paid to think, but they do it anyway. And they and they knew that this the whole thing was not working out. And at the same time, there was, I don't want to call him, there was tremendous bravery among American soldiers and, and our uh, Vietnamese allies there was tremendous bravery. People went ahead and did what they were told and followed orders and, 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 and uh, went on operations and, and took tremendous chances. Um, uh, so it, it, it's, it's, I mean, and they and grievous wounds, terrible wounding and, and died. We lost, uh, and I'll put this in there because people have a tendency to forget about this. We lost 55,000 american troops uh that was lost dead and i don't know how many maybe going on a million uh, wounds including people who were wounded uh psychologically
0: lots of those lots of those for sure
1: yes yeah
0: i mean it's a really interesting i like the first person account of the book and you captured a lot of those moments like personal moments that you had there what would you like to add, or is there anything I missed before we wrap up this interview about Lieutenant Dangerous?
1: Well, I'll tell you, I'll explain <laughs> I'll explain the the title. Lieutenant Dangerous, I was not dangerous, uh, but I had Vietnamese uh translators that were working with me, and they had they had problems with my last name, Danziger. And they some some of them said that it was. Uh, Danzajor Danza they tried to say it, and they finally came up with the one English word which they sort of knew was so I became a uh, lieutenant dangerous, which is funny, in that i i was I was not a danger to anybody
0: right, like I think you wrote like you were in a gunfight, but you don't know if you hit anybody like you just shot towards where the shoot shots yeah, were coming yeah. from, right?
1: well, that was i mean I don't know are we on time or we no, we're good,
0: yeah, you have all the time you need.
1: Please one, please. Of the, one of the things that was, was most hideous, and I live in a place that's very close, in, in southern Vermont, that's close to the family estate of Ellsworth Bunker. Ellsworth Bunker is do- dead now, was one of the last uh, U.S. ambassadors to the South Vietnamese government. And he negotiated a, 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 a policy, which was then passed from the United States uh, Army. Government to the army, uh, to the South Vietnamese government, that we would not fire artillery uh, into the rubber plantations. One of maybe the only Vietnamese cash crop was rubber, and the rubber plantations, which were owned by the French, almost exclusively by the Michelin Tire Company, were went on for for miles of these beautiful trees and beautiful straight lines and the the uh, sap from the tree was every every day a little bit was taken off from a, a, a cut in the, in the side of it and then it was uh, boiled down to make a uh, rubber basic rubber and because we were barred from shooting artillery into the rubber plantations the enemy the north vietnamese and the Viet Cong, when they wanted to get someplace safe in the middle of any kind of fight would run to the rubber plantation. And then they would hide there either in holes or in, or in uh, 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 forested areas behind it. And the only way that we could find them was to go in and fight, um, you know, like door to door or tree to tree fighting is the worst, worst kind of fighting It was fighting with running around with, with rifles shooting at each other. Uh, it, it, was a destruct a self destructive policy, which Bunker, uh, and I think very low of uh, Ellsworth Bunker, even though his land in South Vietnam now in South Southern Vermont now abuts mine, uh, he shouldn't have done it. Uh, he didn't give a goddamn about the uh, danger to the uh, average GI, his own people, and um, shouldn't he should not have done that.
0: My favorite person in your book is uh, Creighton Abrams, who said we should just declare victory and leave. Oh, I'm sorry.
1: I don't want to. That's close. But uh, it was uh, George Aiken.
0: George Aiken. Okay, I got the wrong person. George
1: Aiken was uh, and he was a senator from Vermont. And when I first got over there, I realized they were assigning me to an ordinance company, which I didn't know anything about. And I wrote Uh, Senator Aiken, a, a, a letter, and I said, "This is this is wrong," and he wrote back, and he said, "But that was his his way of getting out of it was that he would we would declare victory and leave."
0: I know it's it, too bad somebody it, did. It might have worked. The, yeah, right. yeah, have the kind of gumption to do, really just do that, just say, "Oh, yeah. we won, we're done," yeah, we're out. But yeah. so it's, it's unfortunate. Great book, great discussion. Thanks so much. Where's the best place for people to get Lieutenant Dangerous?
1: You can get it through Amazon. The publisher is Steerforth Press. And uh, any of the other, uh, any of the other uh, uh, book sources, you will find it. And it's... Um, Let
0: us see if I can get this off.
1: we out, yeah.
0: Um, yeah, so it's Steerforth. And then your website is Danziger, DanzigerCartoons.com, correct? All right, yeah. Mm-hmm. So people can see your cartoons and your work on that and also reach out to you through that. Or do you have other social media you use?
1: No, I don't. I don't have any others. I have a I mean, I have an, an, e-
0: an email. You <laughs> know, well, I can put that if you want to share that. But you definitely if you have that website and people can contact you through that website, that might just be Very right good. Yeah. Yeah. And again, yeah. the author's name is Jeff Danziger. And the title of the book is Lieutenant Dangerous. The Vietnam War Memoir, published July 21st, July 2021, sorry. And it is an editor's pick on Amazon, so congratulations to you for that. So, Jeff Danzier, thanks so much. Thank you. Stay there, stay there.